Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to the series finale of Liftoff. It's been so exciting over these last six weeks to follow the early church through the book of Acts and to see how God did something amazing through the power of the Holy Spirit. As Amy said, we've been looking at the different factors that led the early church to experience liftoff and seeing how those factors can lead us to liftoff in our own lives as well. Now, this morning for our last installment, we're going to be looking at a passage from Acts chapter 20. You can begin turning there. We're going to be reading part of a moving speech that Paul gives to the leaders of the church at Ephesus. And this speech reveals the final liftoff factor we're going to look at, and I'm really excited about this one because I think this, possibly more than any of the others, this factor may be the one that makes the biggest difference in whether or not we experience liftoff in our lives. So let's take a look. Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. Hear the word of the Lord. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. May God bless the reading of his word. I want to start this morning by sharing something that you may not know about me. Uh, If you know me really well, you may know this, and it is that I love cereal. I mean, you may be thinking, what's the big deal? Lots of people like cereal, but let me make clear, I don't like cereal. I love cereal, like kind of in an unhealthy way. Uh, So just to be honest, uh, I've been actually trying to cut back recently because Pretty much every night for the last 25 years, I've eaten two or three large bowls of cereal at about 10 p.m. It's not super healthy, so I'm trying to break it. Uh, Just to give you an idea, for a period of time, there was a cereal I was eating, Kellogg's Low-Fat Granola with Raisins. It's amazing. Uh, On the back was a coupon for 100 frequent flyer miles. And during the time that they were running that promotion, I kid you not, I saved up over 40,000 Advantage miles. (laughs) Do the math. Like I said... I have a problem. Uh, My love affair with cereal started early, very early in my life, but when I was really young, I thought there were only three cereals, Rice Krispies, Raisin Bran, and Grape Nuts. Have you eaten Grape Nuts, by the way? It's like chewing gravel. You know the reason why I thought those were the only three cereals, right? Because that's all my mom ever brought home from the grocery store. But when I turned about five or six, I found out that my mom had been holding out on me. Now, the way I found out was something called Saturday morning cartoons. If you're young, look it up on the internet. You'll, you'll be amazed. So during Saturday morning cartoons, or really during the commercials during the, the, the cartoons, I found out, unbelievably, there were cereals that were called Frosted Flakes. There were cereals called Fruity Pebbles. And I, I couldn't believe this. I think we have some pictures even. I couldn't believe this. There was one called Cookie Crisp. You could have cookies for breakfast. 
And then maybe most un- unbelievably, a cereal that was seriously called Super Sugar Crisp. Super Sugar Crisp. So I came to mom and I was like, mom, you've been holding out on me. Let's go get some Fruity Pebbles. And she said, no, it's not good for you. It's not healthy. And I said, mom, I've seen the commercials. You just don't understand. They, they're part of a well-balanced breakfast. <laughs> you remember that, right? They'd put a big bowl of super sugar crisp next to a piece of toast and orange juice and say part of a well-balanced breakfast. Listen, the only way to balance a bowl of super sugar crisp is with two pounds of kale and an eight-mile run, <laughs> right? Well-balanced breakfast. It's a myth, right? Well-balanced breakfast. So as we grow up, we realize that the, the well-balanced breakfast of Saturday morning cartoons is a myth. So we set our sights on something a little bit higher. We set our sights on what we think we need. It's not a well-balanced breakfast, it's a well-balanced life. A well-balanced life. Now, you know this, this idea has become super, super popular in recent years. Uh, I I googled well-balanced life when I was preparing for the sermon and it came back with 324 million hits. Amazing. Everyone wants to find balance in their lives. Uh, My quick internet search uh, revealed article after article telling you how to find a well-balanced life. So here are a few I saw. We have the headlines here. One is, seven secrets for successful people for living a balanced life. Sounds sounds good, right? Ten simple ways to find balance and get your life back. And then my favorite, I don't know if you can read this one, but it says, how to have a balanced life, 12 steps with pictures. (laughs) Because the pictures are going to make all the difference, right? There's this idea out there that that somehow if we can get just the right things in just the right place, in just the right proportion, at just the right time, we can live a well-balanced life. And if we ever happen to experience that balance, nobody move (laughs) because the smallest smallest nudge can throw off the balance. This balance that we're uh, aiming for, I think, looks a little something like this. It's like our life is like a wheel, right? There's all these different spokes. There's family, there's friends, there's finances, work, health, spiritual life, etc. And the individual spokes are different for each person, but the idea is the same. A place for everything and everything in its place. Keep everything in balance and then don't move. Here's the problem though. It's really, really hard. It's really, really hard, right? If, if it wasn't hard, we wouldn't need all these articles, 12 steps that, with pictures that tell you how to have a well-balanced life, right? You know, we, we have this picture in our head of the well-balanced life, like we've just gotten in a brand new car with balanced wheels and we're driving on a brand new highway and there's no friction and it's just going and going. But honestly, life is not so much like that most of the time, right? It's not that well-balanced wheel on the highway, it's that wheel on the grocery cart. You know the one I'm talking about, right? It's going like this the whole time and just driving you batty. It's hard. It's really hard to have a well-balanced life, right? I mean, in fact, I would go so far as to say it's not just hard, I'd say it's impossible. I know it's a popular idea today, but I think it's a myth. It's a popular myth, but it's a myth nonetheless, because just because something is popular doesn't mean it's possible, right? So here's what I wonder. What if we're aiming for the wrong target? What if a well-balanced life isn't really what we need after all? You guys probably know the Olympics start this week in Tokyo, and as I was prepping for the sermon, I read 
uh, a really fascinating article about an Olympian. It's a guy named Matthew Emmons. This is Matthew Emmons. Uh, he is an expert rifle shooter who won several Olympic medals over the course of his career, but he's best known for the medal that he didn't win. At the Athens Olympics in 2004, Emmons had a huge lead in the 50-meter three-position final, and it was down to the last shot. He was leading by so much, all he had to do was to hit the anywhere close to the bullseye, and he'd win the gold medal. Emmons was calm and confident as he took the last shot. But after he took it, he looked up, and there was no score on the scoreboard. And he asked the official what was going on, and the official said, I'm so sorry, you fired at the wrong target. He had actually shot at the target of his competitor in the next lane. And what was even worse was the shot was so good, if it was on the right target, he would have won the gold medal by a landslide. But, as you know, you don't get any points for hitting the wrong, the wrong target, even if it is a bullseye. And that's what I'm afraid of, friends. I'm afraid that when we aim for a well-balanced life, we're aiming for the wrong lane. We're aiming for the wrong target. So, if that's the case, what's the right target? If a well-balanced life isn't what we truly need, then what is it that we need? I think that's one of the questions that Paul gives us the answer to in this passage. Paul gives us an important and powerful model for how to organize your life. This passage takes place on the coast of modern-day Turkey. Uh, it was a couple of days away from this town called Ephesus. Paul was on his way to Jerusalem, and, and he sent for the leaders at the church at Ephesus. He had previously spent a few years with these leaders. He loved them, he knew them, and he wanted to, to see these friends one final time before he went to Jerusalem, and then he hoped on to Rome and to Spain. So this was kind of like a farewell address to these friends and church leaders. And in this passage, Paul took time to look back on the time he'd spent with them in Ephesus and to look forward to where he was going. He looked back in the first part of the passage and looked forward in the second part. And in both of these sections, I think we can see how it was that Paul organized his life. So I wanna walk through the text together. First, the looking back portion. Verse 18 says, when they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. Okay, so to start out with, uh, whatever it is Paul was about to tell them wasn't a secret. It's something they'd seen in his life. And not just every once in a while, but they'd seen it consistently, every day, every day from the very first day he came. So what was it that Paul had done consistently? Verse 19 says, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. And honestly, this, this word served, this English word served isn't quite as strong as the, the word in the original Greek. Uh, that word in the Greek uh, really means belonged to the Lord or was owned by the Lord. Paul's saying he was a, a bondservant. He was a slave by choice to the Lord. And notice that uh, that service didn't depend on his circumstances. No, he says even in the midst of severe testing, he was serving God. And what was he doing that was serving the Lord? He continues, verse 20. He says, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. In other words, uh, Paul was preaching everything he could, anything that would be helpful, to everywhere that he could, publicly and from house to house, to everyone he could, both Jews and Greeks. He's preaching everything he could, everywhere he could, to everyone he could. And what was 
the message he was preaching? It was the gospel. It was the gospel. He says he was preaching that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Paul's goal when he was at Ephesus was to invite the Ephesians to experience that same kind of transformation, that same kind of radical turnaround that Paul had experienced in his own life. He invites them to repent. That word literally means to turn around and start going the other direction. In other words, the people had been heading this way, living lives for themselves, living lives in sin, and he's inviting them to turn around and to turn their lives, orient their lives toward God. He's inviting them to have faith in Jesus, or in other words, to trust Jesus, to trust Jesus in everything, to trust that Jesus can bring new life, both now and in eternity. So what's Paul saying in this look back section? He's saying, look, the whole time I was with you, I was driven by one thing, the gospel, the gospel. That was my single-minded focus. I belong to the Lord. He owns me, and I'm going to do everything I can to share the good news with everyone I can, no matter what resistance I face. It's inspiring, right? That single-minded focus. And after Paul looks back at his life in Ephesus, he talks about what he believes is to come. He looks ahead. He looks forward. And I'll give you a preview. It's more of the same. It's more of the same. Let's check it out. Looking forward, verse 22, Paul says, and now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem. Just like uh, he was a bondservant to the Lord, now he says he's compelled by the Spirit. Other translations say he's bound by or constrained by the Spirit. Paul's not compelled by his comfort. He's not compelled by his own agenda. He's not compelled by his safety or his preferences. He's decided to be ruled by the Spirit. And what is it that he is expecting to face? He says, I'm not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. So just like he faced resistance in Ephesus, he knows he's going to face resistance in Jerusalem and wherever else he goes. But if you think that's going to stop him from his mission, well, then you just haven't been paying attention, right? Look at verse 24. Paul says, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim, love that, my only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Boy, this verse is amazing to me, so convicting and inspiring at the same time. Paul says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. I consider my life worth nothing to me. In other words, the whole point of my life is to do what I was created for, to fulfill God's purpose for my life. Apart from that, he says, my life would be meaningless. I'd be like a hammer that never drove a nail. I'd be like a piano that never played a song, like a paintbrush that never touched a canvas. It would be worthless. My, my life is worth nothing to me. But in God's hands, in God's hands, it finds its meaning. So he goes on and he says, my only aim, not one of the seven things I'm trying to keep in balance. No, my only aim, he says, is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. Paul's focused on one thing and one thing only, and it's finishing the race that Jesus has marked out for him. It's completing the task that had his name on it. And what was that task? Testifying to the good news of God's grace. So what was Paul's focus in Ephesus? The gospel. What was his focus going to be in the future? The gospel. Paul has one aim, one goal, one single-minded focus is to live every breath for the Lord Jesus. Paul's not aiming for a well-balanced life. He's aiming for a different target altogether. 
What Paul's aiming for is a well-ordered life. That's what we truly need is a well-ordered life. Paul's aiming for a life where Jesus and the gospel are the first and only priority. And everything else he trusts will fall into place behind that. Not balanced like everything is equally important, but ordered where Jesus is first and everything else takes its rightful place in a distant second. The well-balanced life looks like this. All the the different components of our lives are the different spokes and we do our best to try to keep them all in balance so that the wheel can keep moving. But the well-ordered life looks like this. Can you see the difference? Jesus isn't one of the spokes. Jesus is the hub in the center of the wheel. He's what holds the whole wheel together. Everything else finds its proper position in relationship to him. This is the way Paul viewed his life. For him, knowing, following, and serving Jesus isn't one of the things he does. It's the thing that he does. It's his one and only priority. It's who he is. And everything else takes its place behind that one thing. Now, you might think, maybe Paul's an outlier, a radical. After all, I mean, it's Paul, right? I mean, the rest of us can't be expected to be quite so fanatical about this, can we? I think we tend to view this kind of single-mindedness as noble, but unrealistic. I mean, it's great for Paul and maybe a few missionaries or something, but surely that's optional in the, in the Christian life, right? In Amarillo, there's a famous restaurant called The Big Texan. Anybody ever been to The Big Texan? A couple of you. If you've ever driven through the panhandle, you've seen the signs uh, for this place. All up and down Highway 287 and I-40, the signs say, free 72-ounce steak. And then the small print, if eaten in one hour. The deal is, if you can eat a full 72-ounce steak plus shrimp cocktail, baked potato, salad, and dinner roll in under an hour, you get it for free. By the way, I looked up the details of this deal online this week, and I just have to say, if the instructions to a meal have to make reference to a container that they'll give you in case you get sick, (laughs) you might want to order something different. Anyway, anyway, everybody knows this is kind of a gimmick, right? I mean, the vast, vast majority of people who go to the Big Texan don't order the 72-ounce steak. It's just too big, right? I mean, it's ridiculous. So, So they settle for something smaller. And tragically, when many people think of the kind of life that Paul's describing here, this life where Jesus is number one and everything else falls into place behind him, they think of it like they think of the 72-ounce steak. I mean, it's kind of cool to watch someone else try to do it, and if they, if they actually do it, we'll cheer for them and applaud, but come on, it's just too much. It's just too much, and so we settle for something smaller. We settle for a well-balanced life with a little bit of work, a little bit of family, a little bit of hobbies, a little bit of Jesus. But friends, when we settle for the smaller portion, we're missing out. We're missing out. In reality, that's not what God ever intended when he invited us to follow Jesus. The Bible describes following Jesus as this well-ordered life with a single-minded focus on loving and serving Jesus above everything else. And it's, it's not just some novelty item on the menu that's just meant for a few radicals. It's the main course. It's the main dish. It's what Jesus invites us to. It's what he invites every one of us to enjoy. It is the feast to which we are invited. It is what it means to follow Jesus. 
Now, if you think that Paul might be the outlier, I invite you to listen to the words of Jesus. Matthew 6.33, Jesus says, but seek first his kingdom, God's kingdom, and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And then actually my script got on the, the, the headline there, on the, uh, the screen there, so you can just see it. Do you see it? Seek the kingdom of God's first. When, when he's the hub, when he's the center, everything else will fall into place. Matthew 13, Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, Jesus says, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. The treasure was so valuable to him that he was glad to give up everything else. Jesus continues, Mark 8, he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Jesus is saying, look, the way you receive new life is by giving up the old life. It's how we receive the gift of the new life that he brings. Friends, Paul is not an outlier. Paul and Jesus agree here. We don't need a well-balanced life. What we need is a well-ordered life with Jesus in first place and everything else in a distant second. This is the call of Jesus. When, when Jesus comes to the, the, the fisherman on the shore and says, come follow me, this is what he means. When Revelation says, behold, I stand at the door and knock, and he invites us into that relationship with him, this is what he means. It's this single-minded focus on Jesus. Now, I know what you might be thinking at this point because I was definitely thinking it as I was preparing this sermon. Two things, actually, I was thinking. First, I was thinking, oh, Lord Jesus, forgive me. Forgive me because I, I so often fall so short of this glorious calling. So often I'm ordering off the kids' menu. I'm settling for a path that feels easier or safer, and I'm missing out on God's best for me. So I was thinking, Lord Jesus, forgive me. But I was also thinking, Lord Jesus, help me. This is a high calling. And honestly, I don't know if I'm up to it. I don't feel strong enough most of the time. So if you're feeling that way, I just want to tell you there's good news. There's good news. The Bible says Jesus is full of grace. Paul says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ, there is forgiveness. There is healing from our shame from our sin. So friends, don't feel guilty. Feel motivated. Feel motivated to live this well-ordered life with Jesus as our single-minded focus, with Jesus as a hub, not a spoke. And if that task just feels too much for now, if that just feels insurmountable, remember there's grace for that too. When we're weak, God is strong. If you think back to the very first message in this series, we talked about the fact that the Holy Spirit is the engine. The Holy Spirit is the power source. It's not us. Our job is to fix our eyes on Jesus, remembering that, as Hebrews says, he's the author and the perfecter, the finisher of our faith. He's the one who started it. He's the one who will complete it. And he is praying for you right now. Did you know that? That Jesus, Bible, Romans says, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you right now. And Jesus is working in you right now to transform you into the person you were created to be. And as you set your sights on living this well-ordered life, putting Jesus first and living with a single-minded focus on following him with every step, remember, it's not a burden. It's a blessing. It's a blessing. You know, the enemy, 
is crafty and he tries to get us to think about all that we're giving up. He tries to get us to focus on you're giving up your preferences, you're giving up your freedom, you're giving up your comfort, you're giving up your own agenda. And yes, it can be scary, but friends, what we gain when we follow Jesus is so much more. So much more. Friends, following Jesus isn't about got to. Following Jesus is about get to. Following Jesus isn't about all the things we've got to do because God makes us. It's about what we get to do because God lets us. When we put Jesus in the center, when we make him the hub instead of one of the spokes, everything else falls into place. Remember the verse we looked at just a minute ago, Matthew 6, 33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And what was the promise? All these things will be added to you as well. And here's the beautiful thing about it. When you put Jesus at the center, when you make him the hub, he stabilizes the whole wheel. When Jesus is just one of the spokes, when, when one thing gets out of balance, it throws off the whole wheel. If, if something bad happens at work, it spills over into your family and into your health. If, if you're struggling with your friendships, it can impact your work and your family. One challenge throws the whole wheel out of balance. But when Jesus is at the center, he brings healing to all the other spokes. Your family life gets better. Your work life gets better. Your relationships get better. And inevitably, when you face one of the challenge, when, when you have a challenge in one of the spokes, which will definitely happen, that Jesus as the hub serves as a stabilizing force that lets you keep going, even in the midst of your struggle, even in the midst of your pain. Yes, putting Jesus first comes with a cost. It cost us everything. Remember Jesus said the man sold all he had to buy the treasure. Jesus said, if you save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll save it. Putting Jesus first comes with a cost. But friends, it is worth it. It is worth it. Because when we crucify our old lives, we find that Jesus gives us a new kind of life altogether. And in this new life, we find forgiveness for our sins and healing from our past and cleansing from our shame. In this new life, we find peace and joy right now in the midst of tough times. In this new life, we find hope for the future. In this new life, we find real life change, real transformation. As the Holy Spirit works in us, we find that somehow, miraculously, we're turning into the kinds of people who can naturally do the things that Jesus said and did. In this new life, we, we find a new family. Like we talked about last week, we find a team, brothers and sisters who love us and encourage us. In this new life, we find the gift of the Holy Spirit who strengthens us for the journey and leads us in the way we should go. In this new life, we find that God has a purpose for you and a purpose for me, that we get to be a part of this huge reclamation project of the universe, this gospel project where Jesus is making all things new. And, and then we find in this new life, love we don't deserve, grace we couldn't earn, joy we can't comprehend, and an eternal life that we cannot even imagine. It's the new life that we find in Christ. So friends, let's quit settling for lesser things. Let's give up on, try, on trying to find that elusive balance in our lives. Let's just put Jesus at the center, the hub of the wheel. With Paul, let's make Jesus our only aim and let's let him put everything else in its proper place. And as we do, as we've said throughout this series, may we experience the power of those Holy Spirit engines roaring 
beneath us, ignited by the spark of Jesus, our Savior. And and by his grace, may we as a church and may we as individuals find ourselves lifting off the launch pad, soaring into the new life that God has planned for us, for his kingdom and for his glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is an inspiring and convicting text. The idea of making our only aim, our only aim to be your will for us. The task you have marked out for us. God, it's a big task, but it's one that that we feel our hearts uh, warmed toward. We feel drawn toward. And so we pray that by your grace, you would make it possible. Give us the wisdom to see you as central and the courage Uh, to organize our lives around you as the hub. God, I pray for each and every person who's here uh, this morning. God, wherever we are in our spiritual journey, God, I pray uh, that you would just call us deeper. Call us deeper. Call us deeper to take another step of making Jesus our only aim. May it be so in the name of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.